0: Lord, we thank you again for your word. Lord, we are being challenged rightly as we go through this letter that James has written. And Lord, we want you to continue to, to stir our hearts in such a way that you expose the sin that is there and that you move us toward being mature in the faith. Lord, may, may, we, uh, may we have, Lord, more of your word May you give us wisdom, and Lord, may we be the kind of people that both hear the truth but also seek to apply it to our hearts so that when the tests of life come, we can live rightly uh, before other people and for your glory. Allow me now, Lord, as your messenger, to faithfully proclaim the truth of your word for your people, we ask in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, we've all experienced it at some point in our lives. Um, We've all run into this, some of us more than others. We've walked into a place of business or a gathering of some sort where we feel like we just don't belong or we just don't measure up. My wife and I, have for the past two years or so been working on a home remodeling project, which means that we have to kind of go out and figure out exactly what we want and do the research. And so it's our, it's our bathroom and our upstairs uh, bedroom. And uh, so we've gone out and we've been looking at stuff for, for a long time. We would go to various showrooms to see, you know, uh, get an idea of what's out there and how it's all put together and what the materials are and there's one particular showroom that we went into in a town that is not in Castro Valley but near Castro Valley, and we walked into this showroom you know, looking for answers, looking for help, wanting to talk with someone and just see the product that they had. We were kind of you know, novices at this, and we walk in, and we're, we're looking around. We see stuff you know, hung on the walls and different kind of displays and stuff, but we're, we're, st- we're wanting to talk with someone to figure out you know, what we need to do and that kind of stuff. And no one approaches us, and there's what you might call an info desk with a lady sitting behind it, and eventually i go over and say, hey, you know, we'd like to have someone talk to us, and she was kind of grumpy, you know, like, you know, "Why why are you bothering me, you know, kind of thing, and finally there was a guy who came, and he started to show us, well, there's this, and there's this, and there's this, but it was clear that he really didn't want to spend any time with us, he had more important things to do, and We looked around, and and as we were were leaving us, we realized that we were not the the prime kind of customer that they had hoped to see, we have driven up in a Honda Accord, not a Maserati, Um, although my wife looked amazing. I was in jeans and a T-shirt, and we were asking basic do-it-yourself questions, and I'm sure they thought, you know, we're just wasting our time with these folks. And we just walked out, and when we walked out those doors, this this fog of snobbery just lifted up, and and it was gone. And we just both, you know, looked at each other and said, "Yeah, I I don't think that we were really wanted in this showroom at all." Well, and we determined, like, you know, well, there's no reason to go back there ever again because we're not going to get any help. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we happened to be in the neighborhood, and we were looking for some specific things with our with our remodel, and we thought, well, let's at least go in there and. Uh, we know that well, the kind of stuff they had is a little bit more high end and maybe we could at least you know, take a look at it and see what happens. So we go in there expecting this, this kind of snobbery to be in place. But this time we walked in and, and the, the lady at the info desk was very eager to receive us. And we we stated what we needed, and she had a a gentleman come and help us. And he he was very, very attentive, very, very helpful, got prices, made photocopies of this and that and the other, and gave it to us. And we looked around a little bit more, and it it was just like night and day. And as we were leaving, my wife stopped and asked the lady behind the counter, you know, has there been a, a change of ownership here? And she said, oh, yeah, about eight months ago. And she she said, you know, it really shows. Now, friends, we who have been regenerated by the word of truth are now under new ownership. And that new ownership is seeking to change how we live our lives. Not to live our lives in the old way. We were the center of those lives. Now in this new way, Christ and his gospel is at the center. It's at the heart of everything. And as new creatures created in Christ Jesus, it is the word of truth that is now sanctifying our hearts. And James has been speaking about that through this this whole letter. And he has identified for us that there is an empty or worthless religion And there's this pure religion, this true religion that allows the word of God to have its way with us so that we bear fruit in doing good things. Its application on the heart that then bears fruit in living rightly before um, this, this generation. Religion rightly defined then in the context of James is the outward expression of inner faith. And as we saw last week, there were three marks of that pure religion. A controlled heart, emphasized there by uh, the controlled tongue, a compassionate heart, and a clean heart. Now what we noticed at the end of our time last week, I made a mention, it's like I am saying many times that James is going to talk about it. James is going to talk about it. And there is the truth to say that the things that are talked about in chapter 1 now become the basis of his discussion in the rest of the book. We have this controlled heart, a compassionate heart, and a clean heart. So as we come to chapter 2 of this letter, James is building on what he's been saying. He'll talk about the controlled tongue in chapter 3. He'll talk about a clean heart in chapter 4. But it is here in chapter 2 that he continues to talk about the compassionate heart. Of course, the compassionate heart in chapter 1, he emphasized those who are orphans and widows. But now he's going to be expressing this by talking about our struggle, our sinful struggle with showing partiality or showing favoritism. And and what he's saying is that you might find partiality taking place in in the business world, in the marketplace, at community gatherings, but the real scandal, friends, is when the sin of partiality is taking place in the church. And so he's, he's driving home, get this, he's driving home that this is a heart issue. This is not just about a practice. This is about what is going on in your heart. So what we have here is a test or a trial that we must face by remaining steadfast, asking God for wisdom through his word, and then applying that word to our hearts so that it bears fruit in mature, godly living. And so this morning, to summarize our passage and get the kind of tone of where James is taking us, uh, I want to say it this way. This is the test of holding the faith without partiality. Are we the kind of people who say we're Christians and then interact with people rightly by not showing favoritism? God's people, who are supposed to be mature, are called to act a certain way to everyone. They're not called to show partiality. And so the heart of pure religion will not be defiled by this practice of partiality. And this whole discussion takes place in verses 1 to verse 13. We're only going to focus on verses 1 through 7. And this morning our our, our text is structured in, in four steps. There's a command. That's verse 1. There's the illustration, verses 2 and 3. There is an application of that illustration. And then there's this explanation that he gives in verses 5 through 7. So a command, an illustration, an application, and then an explanation. So let's think through now this command. And quite frankly, we're going to spend a good bit of our time in this one verse, because this is the statement, but it's packaged together with some things that are really, really important for us to understand. So considering this, this, this command, um, what does it say? Verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So the command clearly then is to show no partiality. But what does that mean? and and probably the place that we need to go first is to ask the question, what does it not mean? All right? So what does it not mean? It doesn't mean that we don't show honor. There are some days during the course of our gathering here at church that we seek to honor, in particular, the military. And we have people who've served in the military stand. Why? Because we want to thank them. We want to honor them for their service to our country And to let them know that that we are appreciative, even as a church, of their efforts and how they have been a part of, of the life that we are now living. And it's right to honor them. It's also right, for example, if the seats are filling up in our church and there is an older lady who comes into church and she can't find a seat... For, for a parent or maybe even for an adult usher to come alongside of a, of a young person and say, hey, listen, would you please give up your seat because she needs a seat? Or maybe there's a, a pregnant lady who's looking for a seat. There's a rightness to honor people in that way. Okay? There's also a rightness, for example, if Governor Newsom or Nancy Pelosi or Eric Swalwell showed up at our, our church this morning. It would be right for us to recognize and honor them and thank them for their service and pray for them and over them. We don't have to agree with them, but we are honoring their position as leaders in our society. And so we we honor them not because we're going to give them the best seats in the house, but we're going to honor their position and thank them for being here. I think it would be appropriate to do that in that case. Not because they're any better than any one of us, but because they're in a position that scripture tells us that we are to honor. We're simply following what First Peter says in chapter 2, verse 17 of 1 Peter. It says this. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. And then shock of all shocks, honor the emperor. And that assumes then you honor those who are representatives of the emperor. And if we were to say in our country, it would be honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, Honor the president, honor the governor, honor the representative. There's a rightness to that, friends. Now, what if the wealthiest businessman from San Francisco decided to attend our gathering? How would we respond? Would we honor him publicly? The answer is no, we wouldn't honor him publicly. Now, we certainly would honor him just like anyone else is coming into into our church. But we're not honoring simply because he has money. Let me press it a little bit further. What if Steph Curry from the Warriors came? Or Derek Carr from the Oakland Raiders showed up? Would we honor them in our church? The answer is no. And in fact, I would want you to refrain from taking selfies at all. (laughs) I'm serious. When I was a youth pastor in Buffalo, um, we had a couple of professional athletes that were part of our church. Mark Kelso, one you may know, him, a football player, Um, And what I found during that time is that these professional athletes wanted to come to church and not mess with the celebrity status. They just wanted to be one of the families at church. And so there was a sense in which you almost had to protect them just so they could come and uh, rest with the family of God. Why? Because they weren't there because of their status. They were there because they were part of the body of Christ. But friends, there's a, there's a tendency to be caught up with the world that we would be like, oh, they're here. Ooh, isn't that great? I understand there's a natural celebrity factor, but we would need to fight within ourselves to say, you know what, let us not abuse their presence. Let's, let's enjoy celebrating and worshiping God together. So it, it, it doesn't mean that honor shouldn't be taking place in the context of church. There's a rightness in honoring certain people at certain times. But what James is getting at is that there is no special honor given to someone simply because of his wealth. And if we treat someone with more respect because they have money, and another with less respect because they're poor, we cannot justify our actions. Wealth may earn privilege in many circles, but when it comes to the church... We we are not to allow it to affect how we are interacting with them. This is true not just of finances. It's true of people who may have degrees, have a different skin color, different ethnic origin, um, a different social status, a different family name. You know, when someone says, "Well, don't you know who I am?" Uh, I don't care. I mean, really, I mean, in on, a on, on, on rightness, we, we, your name is not significant for whether or not you're welcome here or not. Just come, right? Now, there's a tendency then for us to, to look down our noses according to those distinctions and to show partiality. But James is focusing in on one cultural issue, and that was, of course, the disparity between the rich and the poor, now friends, this is consistent with Scripture. Turn with me, if you would, please, to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 15 is where we're going to read. This is the struggle of, uh, against par- partiality. This is not new information, and I just want you to see it, that it's in the heart of the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15. You shall not do injustice in court. You should not be partial, get this, to the poor. Or defer, defer to the great, in other words, the rich. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Did you get that? He says, don't show partiality to the poor. <laughs> because they're poor. And don't show partiality to the great or the rich, because they're rich. The standard by which we must judge or measure is righteousness in the court of law. And I think this is really helpful for us, even when it comes to political things, because there's this kind of emphasis in our political culture that says, you know, the poor, the poor, the poor, the poor, the poor. But listen, the poor can be unjust, just like the rich can be unjust. And we have it rooted in the Old Testament. Proverbs 22, verse 2 says, The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is the maker of them all. You'll have a hard time proving the evils of being rich or the evils of being poor being pitted together against them in Scripture. Now, James here in this passage uses this illustration. We're going to see the why and the what of it. But be careful. God does not have a special category, the rich over here being evil and the poor being you know, just. thats not how it works. They're all without Christ until they come to Christ. And when they come to Christ, they are united in Christ regardless of their socioeconomic position. And friends, we need to be careful that we don't get caught up with the society's viewpoints, pitting the rich against the poor. So they'll always be rich, There will always be poor. Some will be great people. Some will be um, uh, people who pursue unjust things. Turn now to the book of Acts in chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, because now here's a New Testament example for us, and it's this man Cornelius. In Acts chapter 10, Peter falls into a trance and learns that all foods are clean and that all people are the same in God's eyes. And when God orchestrates Peter to be taken to the house of Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion, here's what God says. Or here's what Paul says. You yourselves know, this is verse 28, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. See, there's partiality going on there. Division going on there. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. See what's going on there? There's a division, Jew and Gentile, and God in his wisdom shows Peter that you can now interact with those who are Jews, you can interact with those who are Gentiles. And later Peter in that same discussion in verses 34 and 35 says this, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows No partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So God is a God who does not show partiality. He doesn't show favoritism. He is welcoming everyone to come and bow the knee before him. Now, friends, this is also consistent with the example of Christ, The characteristic of being free from partiality was true in Christ in a remarkable way, so much so that his enemies noticed it and couldn't find fault with him on this particular issue. So turn now to Mark chapter 12, and we're going to begin at verse 14. You see, the, 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 the religious leaders saw that Jesus was consistent in this, and so they sought to use it against him. He would not show partiality. Mark chapter 12, verse 14. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, butter you up a little bit, and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Oh man, we've got it now. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? You see what they're doing? They're using the fact that Jesus is not the kind of person who shows partiality. And so now they're trying to force him to give an answer that would somehow demonstrate partiality. But he would not give them what they wanted. In Luke's, transli- or Luke's record of the story, this is chapter 20, verses 21 and 2 of Luke. Here's how it, how it says. This is how it's communicated. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? So they know that he doesn't show partiality, but they're now using it against him. So Jesus here is just a great example. So what, what ultimately I'm trying to show you here, and I think what James is building upon the fact is that the scriptures in the Old Testament, the testimony of Christ, let us know that showing partiality is not part of God's plan. We're told to have a proper respect for authorities, civil authorities, our bosses, our husbands, fathers, mothers, for those with older years and greater experience. So what, is, what does it not mean? Well, what does it mean then? Well, the word partiality literally means to lift up the face. And and the idea of that word is to look on the appearance, okay? So to show partiality or favoritism then is to measure someone by what you see on the outside, by the externals. It means that everyone, regardless of their finances, their social standing, their level of education, their color, uh, their, their gender, their ethnic origin, all of them should be dealt with and welcomed by the church in the same manner not necessarily by what is seen on the outside. The problem is, friends, that we are all so naturally inclined to be partial. We are. Don't deny it. Don't say, I don't know. You struggle with this. You do. We tend to have beliefs and prejudice that put people in pigeonholes and categories and rank them based on those prejudices. We consider their looks, their clothes, their race, their ethnicity, their social status, their education, their personality, their intelligence. We consider their wealth, their power, the kind of car they drive. We consider their speech, their vocation, the type of house they live in. We consider where they live, to whom they're married, how many children they have. We consider uh, whether they're Ace fans, Giants fans, even Dodger fans. We, we consider whether they went to school, what political party they vote for, and even the color of their hair. Here's, here's what happens, guys. Just in a few, sentence, uh, few seconds, we, we filter a person based on these beliefs and prejudices. We don't realize necessarily what we're doing, but we, we see someone, and all of a sudden, all these things are going into our mind, and we're making conclusions. That's just part of our makeup, friends. And in our, we have certain prejudices and beliefs within us then that respond to what we receive, and therefore we act on that. So the struggle is that we are naturally partial, but friends, we're called to live our lives without partiality. <laughs> so according to what James has already said, what is it that we need to do if we're going to remain steadfast? we need to ask for wisdom. And God will grant us wisdom. But we, when he gives us his wisdom through his word, we not only need to receive it, but then we need to allow it to affect our hearts so it changes how we live. That is maturity. So what we have here, friends, is a test. A test that begins uh, with show no partiality. And as you... You know, first come against this command. You know, what's going on in your heart? Are you saying, you know what, no, I don't really do that. Or, yeah, I do struggle with that. There's some things that are going on. Now, friends, this, this um, command isn't standing alone. It is bookended by two things that are critically important. Let's see what they are. And I call this the backdrop, then, of this command. First of all, I want you to notice... Um, These two identifying statements. At the beginning, it's the statement, my brothers, and at the end, it's the Lord of glory. My brothers. Uh, James is using this repeatedly throughout this book. He's identifying his audience, and this is an expression that describes the Christian church. It's a family. It's a brotherhood. Brothers and sisters here are being identified with this one term, brothers. Okay? Okay? This is, this is both male and female. This is a collective expression of the body of Christ. And we stand equal as brothers and sisters before God as the church. So we have believers here united together because of the gospel of Christ. Notice it says there, My brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what makes them brothers and sisters. It's their faith in Christ. Outside the church, we share a a common humanity. We don't want to deny that, but Christians are not committed to a worldwide brotherhood. We're committed to a Christian brotherhood. So Christians are not comrades for political purposes. We're brothers and sisters for gospel purposes. Political brotherhood assumes far too much and tends to forget the awfulness of sin. And that's why we see so many people pitted against each other with sin running rampant and justified, you might want to say, in a political scenario. So as Christians, we must remember that even trying to, to battle things like racism outside of Christ will never ultimately work. It isn't that Christians don't want to work for unity between men of different color, but we are aware of the fact that you can only find real brotherhood in the church. This is what what Christ is communicating to us, that our answer to things like racism and that kind of stuff is not outside of us. It is here. The church is what people need. And it's not just the church, but it's the church where the gospel is proclaimed, the gospel is central, and the gospel is lived out. When someone walks through the doors, it should not matter to us what color of skin they have. It shouldn't matter at all. Now, here we are in the Bay Area, and we just look at ourselves, and we are multi-ethnic, and, you know, once, once you kind of... People you know, from other, other states might come and say, wow, this is great, but we just kind of like, this is just normal. I mean, it is. You know, and just as we look back at the, the, the history of, of Gateway, at one time, things have changed just because people have moved, but we had uh, Anglo elder, Hispanic elder... Filipino elder, African-American elder, and then another Anglo elder. Is that because we said we had a quota that we wanted to fill so that we could actually connect to our culture? No, that's just because those are the people that God was raising up in our church. Those weren't even considerations as we were thinking about eldership. Okay. This is what the church should look like, right? But we need to be committed to it and recognize that this is what ultimately people need And these these barriers will not be broken down unless the gospel comes to bear and oneness is actually seen because of Christ. That's the real answer to that struggle. Now, James wordsmiths this command carefully and roots it in the fact that his readers are in the faith. As you hold the faith in Christ Jesus, you must not show partiality. So he's speaking then to people who are believers, holding the faith. Demands a certain kind of living. And that's what he's driving at here. And it's not just behavior, it begins before that. It begins in the heart. The next word or expression here is the Lord of glory. This is a statement, a description of Christ. The glory of God is embodied in the person of Christ. And how did the glory of God come down? In a palace? In a Rolls Royce, in a Learjet, with fanfare? No, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And the poverty he's talking about is what we find in Philippians chapter 2 where he released the grip of heaven and humbled himself to come to this earth, taking upon himself the form of man. So he left the splendor of heaven took up residence in this world. Rich Jesus, poor Jesus. Throne, donkey, cross. Heaven, stable. Perfection, humanity. That's what Jesus entered into. And when the richest man in the universe, the Son of God, came into the world, outward expressions would not have suggested that this was indeed God's Son. Yet it is this Jesus who deserves honor As the Lord of glory, we honor him as supreme. We gather together on Sunday in order to worship him. And friends, if we're gripped by his grace and captivated by his glory, how can we be mesmerized by a mere man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes? We're here to worship the Savior, not to be caught up with people that the world says are important. By virtue of what they're wearing. Okay, now, that's all. Verse one. What time we have here? See, I, I have my watch. I now have a clock. If you were here last week, all right. But I, I purposely, I wanted this to be to be long because this is the foundation, friends. So let's look at the illustration, and we'll see some things now about this illustration. It's a reasonable story, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a reasonable story that could happen not only in, in any church that James is in. He probably actually observed this kind of thing. But it's the kind of story that could come and affect us here at Gateway. So let's consider this illustration with a little bit more care. And what we'll see here are two men with two responses. So there's two men. There's a rich man. There's a poor man. Two men come into church. It talks here about if if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. That assembly is a word that is used to describe a, a, a synagogue. This is, again, old Jewish language. This is James using Jewish terminology to express the activity of the church. So this is as they're gathering for church. You have a rich man, you have a poor man. You have a rich man now who has gold rings on his fingers. Literally, that means... Gold-fingered, he was, he was clearly portraying the fact that he was rich because in that culture, the more rings you had on your fingers, the more wealth you had, and the more stature you had. The Roman statement, uh, statesman philosopher Seneca wrote this, We adorn our fingers with rings, and we distribute gems over every joint. Gold rings were even available for rent so that you could go into a gathering and fool everyone into thinking that you were richer than you really were. One of the church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, in this first century here, even even suggested that Christians should only wear one ring. And if they were to wear a ring, they should only wear it on their pinky. I don't know the biblical basis of that, but I think he was trying to counteract this cultural dynamic that says you measure yourself by the rings. Now, that's kind of resurfaced over the past few years in a certain culture that we have where rings and blings and all that kind of stuff are important to show wealth. But that's the same idea. This is what was going on there. When someone rich came in, they wanted to show their wealth. In fact, you even see you read about stuff like that happening as it relates to the wealthy women who adorned their hair with all sorts of stuff. Their hair was the place where they showed their wealth. So we have a rich man coming in. It's clearly that he's very rich. Not only that, he has fine clothing. The word uh, fine here is a word that actually translates lampros, which means bright or brilliant. So they're coming in with the gold rings and a shimmering jacket. Everyone knows that they're in the house, right? That's the point. They know that they're rich. They know that their, their clothing is gorgeous and beautiful. They know that they've caught the attention of everyone there. Then you have a poor man. This man is poverty-stricken and dependent on others for support. He has shabby clothing. Literally, that means his clothing is filthy, it's dirty. And it may be rags, but the, the emphasis here is the dirtiness of the clothes. So to put it in modern terms, you have a rich man. This man arrives at church driving a Maserati. And when he opened the door to step out, you can not escape the fact that he's wearing these Italian monk strap leather shoes, an Armani suit, a Rolex watch, and his sunglasses could pay your mortgage this month. <laughs> All right? And then you have a poor man. He arrives just after the rich man. He, he arrives on foot with a shopping cart full of bags. And he's wearing worn-out tennis shoes, roughed-up jeans, and a stained tie-dye t-shirt. James is trying to give us a stark contrast here. And what he's saying then is that these people are coming to the assembly. And then you have two responses. Let's read in verse 3. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in the good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. So the two responses. One response is to the rich man and that would be worldly respect and honor. To the poor man, worldly dishonor and disrespect. They know by your actions here whether you're seeking to honor them or whether you're seeking to disrespect them. Now let's, let's move ahead from the flow of the illustration because I think we get the illustration to the application which is in verse 4. And he says here, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? When we think about what we have done and the implications of what we've done, that should shake us to the core. If we're seeking to Be believers who are living like believers. What James says is not good news. It's a warning. It's a challenge. So what is it that has taken place? Well, notice in verse 3 that we're told, you have paid attention to the rich man. It means that your heart has been aroused to respond to the rich man in one way and to respond to the poor man in another. The rich man caught your eye. And your heart responded by saying to itself, look at who this person is. They're rich and influential. I need to treat them with honor and respect. But your eye also catches the poor man. And your heart responds a little differently by saying, look at who this person is. They're extremely poor and are only going to want some kind of handout. They can come inside, but they'll need to make room for other people. They'll have to stand. If they have to sit down, they can sit down at my feet on the floor. Now, notice carefully that both are received into the assembly, but in two different ways and with two different attitudes. Now let us remember the great context of the book. James is saying to us, here is a test that is going to expose the maturity of your heart. James isn't just addressing the practice of partiality here. He's addressing the heart from which the attitude of thinking partially is birthed. Hearts that are mature in Christ, shaped and fashioned by his implanted word, will bear fruit in responding rightly to the scenario Hearts that are immature or that have been caught up with worldly thinking are reflected then in the story. So as James diagnoses the hearts here of the individuals who have shown partiality or who have looked on with favor to the rich man and disfavor to the poor man, he identifies two issues. Here's what he says. Here's what you're doing. You are making distinctions among yourselves. Now this... Expression, making distinctions among yourselves, has, has two nuances to it. The first one is, that, is this idea of judging between two people. Okay? This one's worth my time, this one's not worth my time. That's kind of the idea behind it. The other nuance is this. It's a person who is doubting or wavering. It's the same idea that he's introduced here, talking about a rich man and a poor man, of having a divided heart or a double-minded man who's unstable in all his ways. You're not sure whether you're standing in, you know, kingdom living or whether you're standing in the world's way of living and the person has their feet planted in both and they're conflicted. That's somewhat the idea that's going on here. They're at odds within themselves. They have a hypocritical desire to serve both God and money. So, the question we must ask ourselves is this Is there a difference between the faith we pre- profess and the course of the actions we pursue? Is there a difference between the faith we pre- profess and the course of the actions that we pursue? James is saying, You are brothers or believers, yet this is how you behave? It's so not only what are you doing, but what are you becoming? You are becoming something. You have become, he says, but I think there's also kind of a, a lingering, ongoing truth here. What we need to recognize here is that if the rich man walked into our church this morning, you would notice him that he was rich, and you would put him in the rich category. If a poor person walked into church this morning, you'd notice them as rich and likely put them into the sorry, the, notice that they're poor and put them into the poor category. James is not saying it's wrong to take notice that they're rich and they're poor. That's a reality. That's a true condition. What he is concerned about is how you and I respond to those true distinctions. You see that? Are you allowing the thinking of the world to affect how you value the lives and souls of people? You value a person's wealth and influence. You may act because you see them as an opportunity for personal gain. You know, here comes the guy. He's in a Maserati. I wonder if I can get a ride in a Maserati. I'm going to come and sit here. See, we respond with motivations of the heart that affect what we do. And you know, if we want a little bit of that wealth to rub off on us, maybe we can have a little influence with them, maybe we can benefit from this relationship. You See how this, this happens? And so you treat them differently. But the other person is like, you know, they're probably gonna ask for money. They're probably gonna want my help. Run away. See, these are heart attitudes. These are not Christ-like attitudes at all. If you don't value a person's poverty, who clearly clearly does not have any wealth or influence, you may not act because you see them as draining resources. So how does this apply to us? The question James is asking us to consider is this. How do the thoughts in my heart affect how I respond to other people? Are they evil thoughts that are shaped by both society and my sinful desires? Here's another way to put the question does my reaction change depending on who walks in the door on Sunday mornings? They may be rich or poor, straight or gay, clean or struggling with a vice, young or old, Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump bumper sticker people, white or people of color, carrying Bibles, not carrying Bibles, attractive or frumpy, eager and enthusiastic, uncertain and, and questioning. These, this, is just, this is just people, friends. And we put all this stuff through the filters that we have in us. And what James is saying is let Christ and the gospel shape those filters so that your response is a reflection of the heart of the Old Testament and a heart of the example of Christ and what true believers should be. All these distinctions, and many more, are what we see On the outside, when we evaluate a person on first impressions. So the question is, how are we responding to them in our hearts? Now friends, the thinking of the world is to show partiality. They'll say we don't, but they do. But this is God's church. And Jesus Christ was a revolutionary. He welcomed rich and poor. He didn't allow these distinctions to hinder him from ministering to people. And in the church, we must have a radical answer for this kind of behavior and not be in it. Another excuse for people to point at and say, they just show partiality at Gateway. They prefer this kind of person. They don't want this kind of person. My friends, that's something that we need to to wrestle with. The, 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 The Christian teaching is that when the poor and the rich come to church, they they check their richness and their poverty at the door. And they sit on the same pew. And a poor man might read scripture leading the church when rich people are sitting out there. In James' context, a poor man, a slave, might stand and lead part of the ceremony while his master is in the audience. You get that? Because their status and their money and the classifications are checked in at the door because the body of Christ is not concerned with those things. Now we move to the explanation. James is becoming more indignant now. He's saying, listen, my beloved brethren. My pastor growing up would say this, he'd say, listen to me. Listen, is what he said. Emphasis on the L. Listen to me, right? This is James. I'm speaking to you, I'm being passionate. He's like, listen to what I have to say. He wants to shake them. He wants to knock their heads together. He wants to, to, to give two striking thoughts. The first one is this When you do this, you are dishonoring the poor. Uh, let's read verses five and the beginning of six. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. James presents three truths about the poor here. First of all, they are chosen by God. Selected and elected by God. Something that you and I have no activity in. This is God's gracious favor. Ephesians 1.4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should walk holy and blameless before him in love. I can't explain God's favor. It is amazing grace because we don't deserve it. And yet God gives us his grace. They are chosen by God. And because they're chosen by God, they are rich in faith. Having become God's children, they are now benefited with all sorts of resources as God's people. The third thing is, they are heirs of the kingdom. To be an heir means that you possess something and you're a part of it. Now, there are so many people, friends, that are trying to get into the United States. You know that. They're going to swim. They're going to... They're come through walls. They're going to fly it. How are they going to try it? Why? Because America is seen as the, the land of opportunity. And the reality is it is. And when people get here and they finally settle, one of the things they want to do is become an American citizen. Why? Because they don't only want to live here, they want this place to be their home. They want to own their citizenship and become an American citizen. See. And there's a sense here That we need to to recognize that that James is, is, is communicating that this is what the poor have. They are citizens of the kingdom. And so he's saying to his friends here as he writes this letter Look around you. Who are God's people? They are, by and large, the poor. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. In other words, those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, most of them were not wise or educated. Were not powerful or people of influence. Were not uh, of noble birth. They didn't have standing in society. They were just common, run-of-the-mill poor people. What we need to recognize, friends, is when, when the gospel came into that culture, there wasn't a middle class. you were either poor or you were rich. And we can go through scripture and say there were some rich believers, but the majority, the vast majority of believers were poor. This is not many of you, right? So there were a few. Now, this is not necessarily the case with us here in the United States, Certainly in James' day, this, is, this distinction was there, but over time, as the gospel went forward, Christianity seeped into every strata of human society so that when we look at the church today, it's made up of poor, middle-class, rich people. This is different. This is not saying we're not in tune with the New Testament. This is just the fact that the gospel has spread into all different parts of life. So James is saying when you treat the poor in this way, when you look on them and see little value in them to the point that you would slight them in such humiliating ways, when you do that, you are dishonoring the ones that are mine. You're looking at them through worldly lenses that have been shaped by the culture that you're living in as well as the sinful and selfish desires of your own heart. And you respond to them with shame and dishonor. And the reality is these are your brothers (laughs) from a societal perspective. These are your peers. Friends, if you have the opportunity to use your gifts and have a Bible study, you could either start a Bible study with the Oakland A's or you could start a Bible study with a group of meth addicts which would you choose and why? If you were invited to go to a Bible study with the Oakland A's or with a group of meth addicts, which one would you likely want to go to? See, just thinking about that question helps kind of consider what is going on in your heart. Now, hear this. I think if there was a Bible study going on with the A's and a Bible study going on with, with with meth addicts, that both are valuable places where the Word of God needs to come to bear, because those athletes are actually in a very unique context and they need the gospel desperately. But my question has more to do with which one would you say? Oh, I would love to go to this one. I mean, you t- probably wouldn't say, "Oh, can't wait to meet these meth addicts. I want to get some selfies and some pictures. Maybe they can sign something." No. I think our hearts would say, yeah, wouldn't it be cool? Wouldn't it be great if? And friends, there are people that are doing Bible studies, they're interacting with people that are considered by our society as troubled, as dangerous, as not worth taking the time for because of choices they have made. And we might look down our nose and say, well, yes, someone else can do that. What we want is this special thing, see? These are all heart issues in, in And James is saying, be careful here, be careful with your heart, because when you make choices like that, you are dishonoring my people, right? Now, secondly, not only that, you flatter the rich. Now again, I gotta back up and say here that James isn't saying that all rich people are evil, but we need to understand what he is actually saying. Verse six, are not the rich ones who oppress you? and, And the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? There is a culture, there is a rich culture with its cultural status and cultural thinking that looks down on the poor in particular. Looks down on these rebel Christians and who are these Christians? A bunch of poor people gathered together worshiping this Jesus Christ who they think is their savior. How ridiculous is that? And not only that, they're the kind of people that give loans to people who are poor. And if the people who are poor are having trouble paying it because the interest is so vast, it's the rich people that take advantage of the poor and take them into court. These are the kind of people that you're giving favor to. John Calvin comments on this verse. He says, it is odd to honor one's executioner and in the meantime to injure one's friends. Yes, it's odd to honor your oppressor rather than one who is just like you, your neighbor and your friend. So they flatter the rich, first of all, when they are the ones who oppress. And they flatter the rich when they are the ones who blaspheme the name of Christ. They put it down. They mock it. Now you see the picture that he's painting here. This is a heart issue, friends. This is not a political issue. This is a distinctly Christian issue. Because we're not to be worried about the politics of this world in a sense. Our attitude toward people should flow out of what Christ has done in us. And because we are allowing the word of God to take root in our heart, and we're desiring to, to, to actually allow it to reign and apply it, we bear fruit in the kind of response to people that is Christ-like. Regardless of the politics of this world, quickly hear some concluding thoughts. We we're going to say, holding the faith demands a certain kind of living. Based on what we've looked at so far, I just have four things just to quickly mention here. It's more concerned with gospel correctness than political correctness. I just want to challenge you, friends, Sometimes we spend way too much time on the internet, on Fox News, or whatever it might be that you're holding onto, and spending time in the word of God that is really the source that you need to give you wisdom and direction and to give you an impact in this world. We are here to be Christ's representatives, not a political party. Secondly, it's more concerned with people's souls than people's stuff or status the moment you begin to drift because of people's stuff and status, you know that you're not so concerned about their soul. Are you concerned about that person who is walking in the door, whether rich or poor, whatever they might look like, they are a soul that is here that is going to be under the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ and your heart should be saying, God, would you grip them today? Third. It is more concerned with serving the Lord than serving self. In other words, looking at what I can get from it as opposed to how I can serve. Do you realize that people who have wealth have needs, need the gospel, need friends that are true friends, that are not looking for stuff, that just want to be accepted for who they are? Oh, they may not know that, (laughs) but they long for that. And finally, it's more concerned with following Christ's example than the world's. Friends, it's so easy to get caught up with all the things that are happening in our culture and to forget that what shapes how we do what we do and why we do what we do is not what's out there, but it's being in the Word of God and the Holy Spirit at work in our hearts so that we can live it out. It is God who sets the agenda for us through his word, through what Christ has done. And James is calling his readers to say, here's a test, how are you doing? Gateway, here's a test. How are you individually, and how are we corporately doing with this? Lord, help us today. There's some weighty things for us to consider. If we are guilty, Lord, would you show it to us? It may be painful, hard to hear, but Lord, if you are moving us toward maturity, you are giving us this test, and you're calling us to remain steadfast, to ask for wisdom, and to be strengthened by your word in our hearts so that then we can apply it and live it in such a way that would honor you. James is not just giving Some quick ideas here. He's driving for the heart of his hearers. And, Lord, you are working through his word, not just for that original audience, but for we who are here at Gateway. May we not be a people who are guilty of showing favoritism, but, Lord, may we be a people who are welcoming and gospel-centered and gospel-thinking because we see ourselves as united together without regard for our social status or anything else, gather together as one to worship you because of what you have done for us, Lord. May we strive to be that for your glory, we ask in your name. Amen.